Before we begin, a quick warning. This episode has descriptions of violence, torture, and strong language throughout. Hello, my name is John Cantley. I'm a British journalist who used to work for some of the bigger newspapers and magazines in the UK. On the 18th of September, 2014, a new video appears. And for his friends and family, it's the first sighting they've had of John Cantley in almost two years. Dressed in an orange Guantanamo-style jumpsuit, he sat behind a desk and talking directly into the camera. But this is no ordinary hostage video. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, he's only doing this because he's a prisoner. He's got a gun at his head, and he's being forced to do this, right? Well, it's true. I am a prisoner. That I cannot deny. But seeing as I've been abandoned by my government and my fate now lies in the hands of the Islamic State, I have nothing to lose. He doesn't look nervous or obviously scared. He holds the camera's gaze throughout. But his anger is unmistakable. I'm going to show you the truth behind the systems and motivation of the Islamic State and how the Western media, the very organization I used to work for, can twist and manipulate that truth for the public back home. Relief that he's alive is tinged with confusion. How has John been spared when others haven't? Does he believe what he's saying? Has John Cantley turned? Join me for the next few programmes and I think you may be surprised at what you learn. For this investigation, we've spoken to people all over the world about John Cantley. But in this episode, we'll hear John in his own words. But first, a reminder. Last time on Last Man Standing. Daniel Rye Otterson, the Danish photographer who'd been a hostage with John Cantley, told us how the Beatles appeared to have their own plans for John. They saw that he can tell a story like nobody else. He's a person that can keep somebody's attention. So I just think that they saw a great potential. Daniel was allowed to go home after his family paid a ransom. But he's still haunted by the last words John said to him. One of the last things he told me before I left the room was that, Daniel, can you please try to tell whoever you speak to from Britain that if they ever get the opportunity to bump the shit out of us, do it, because I don't want to be used as propaganda for these assholes. I'm Manveen Rana, and I'm joining the veteran war correspondent for The Times, Anthony Lloyd, for this special series on his long-running investigation to find out what happened to John Cantley. This is Last Man Standing from The Times and The Sunday Times. Episode 6, Lend Me Your Ears. When Daniel Rye Otterson was released by ISIS in June 2014, there were still seven British and American hostages left. They were already losing hope. But on the morning of the 8th of August, news broke that plunged them all into a fresh hell. We begin with this morning's top story, American forces back in action in Iraq. U.S. planes struck against the Islamic militants known as ISIS. The White House says the first U.S. airstrike against the terrorist group ISIS 
hit the group's artillery early this morning. A global coalition led by America and including the UK began to bomb ISIS. They were now officially at war. They started bombing Islamic State targets first in Iraq and then also in Syria. Anthony Lloyd was following events closely. So there's a major historical development, milestone moment in the conflict with Islamic State. As America pounded ISIS targets, the Beatles focused their rage on the remaining hostages. The torture and violence became more and more intense until a fortnight later, it spilled over and shocked the world. We want to welcome our viewers from around the world to this breaking news coverage. An American journalist has been beheaded by ISIS terrorists. A video showing the horrific killing and its gruesome aftermath was released on the internet a short while ago, along with a message to the United States to end its intervention in Iraq. The clip, which is still being verified, has sent chills around the globe. In it, Foley was forced to read a statement blaming America and even his own brother John, who was in the US Air Force, for his killing. We see James Foley kneeling on the desert sand, dressed in orange, his head shaven, murdered by a figure dressed in black standing behind him, Mohammed M. Wazi, who later became better known to the world by his nickname, Jihadi John. In that video, an ISIS member speaking English who claims to be holding a second American journalist and threatens to kill him as well, unless, as they demand, the U.S. gets out of Iraq. The world was transfixed. The horror didn't end with the first beheading. Instead, it created a climate of fear as it became clear that there were more to come. James Foley's murder precipitated a chain of choreographed killings in which in each video, approximately at two-week intervals, a hostage was murdered and the next hostage up in line to be murdered was introduced. It was therefore entirely natural to anybody looking at what was going on with any knowledge that John Cantley was highly likely to appear in the next murder video as the next likely victim. Back in Britain, John's family and friends prepared themselves for the worst. I did a deal with a member of the family that I would watch all those videos for them and I would report back. That's Kevin Godlington, a former soldier and an old friend of John Cantley's. I had reconciled myself one morning to the fact that I was going to have to watch John have his head cut off. Wow. And that it was for me to see that and for me to let the family know. I mean, I'd been a soldier since I was 18 and I'd served all over the world and I've seen, I've seen war in all of its disgusting glory. But there is something particularly disgusting that in the comfort and sanctity of your own home, knowing that your friend is in the most horrific harm's way, on a weekly basis in high definition, watching somebody have their head sawn off. Yeah, it's, it's horrible. Every fortnight, as a new film of a beheading emerged, John Cantley's friends held their breath, fearing that he'd be next. But that's not what happened. Exactly a month after James Foley's murder, he appears in a totally different kind of video. That was the start of Lemuria's. Maybe I will live and maybe I will die, but I want to take this opportunity to convey some facts that you can verify. Facts that, if you contemplate, might help preserving lives. Lend Me Your Ears was the title of what John promised would be a series of films showing the world the truth about ISIS and the Western governments who'd abandoned him and the other hostages. Over the next few programmes, I'm going to show you the truth. The phrase, lend me your ears, comes from a speech in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. A speech all about betrayal. It's also a lyric from a Beatles song. 
A nod, perhaps, to his captors, the men who are now keeping John Cantley alive. As the Western media tries to drag the public back to the abyss of another war with the Islamic State, after two disastrous and hugely unpopular wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, why is it that our governments appear so keen to get involved in yet another unwinnable conflict? John Canley's appearance in this first introductory episode is not just his own debut presentational performance, and that's what it was for Islamic State, but it's also some sort of start of some new dawn of terrorist propaganda in which a hostage plays a sort of parody of almost a chat show and a presenter in which the viewers never sure whether or not the hostage will lose their life or stay alive. John Canley is certainly not sure, and he says as much. So there's this terrible hook into watching the series. You're thinking, well, is this guy going to stay alive? Around the world, the media didn't know what to make of this video. We are not showing this ISIS propaganda, delivering what he says is the first of a series of messages about ISIS to the US and to Britain. Obviously he's being coerced here, but Stockholm Syndrome, would that play into this at all? This is the first time in nearly two years we've suddenly seen him resurface in this very strange video. In it, he seems to say that he'll be reporting on a series of stories about the true ISIS. The hostage crisis was a huge story across the world. So there was a massive amount of interest and inevitably a lot of speculation pretty much from the get-go as to whether John might have Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome, you know, first used by the media in 1973 to describe the supposed development in some hostages of positive feelings and trust towards their their captors. Only elements of the media were coming up with that at this early stage. Those questions began to grow as time went by, but there were certainly people who right from the start were beginning to question, has John in some way turned? But amongst the people who'd shared a cell with John just a few months earlier, there was a very different response. Daniel Rye Otterson watched, knowing that John had said he'd rather be bombed than used as propaganda. I remember when I first saw him sitting there in his orange jumpsuit saying the lend me your ears words and I was just thinking like, fuck, like how much John was throwing up inside of himself because he didn't want it to do that. But right now, he didn't have a choice. He wanted to survive. He wanted to come home. He wanted to try to see his dad alive before he passes away. But yeah, he didn't want to be used for, for propaganda. For Javier Espinosa, a highly experienced Spanish reporter who'd also been a hostage and had suffered mock executions at the hands of the Beatles, as he watched the videos, he said they reminded him of a 1001 Arabian Nights. Like Scheherazade, John Cantley was having to tell stories to win a few more hours of life. And the moment he stopped, he knew what would happen. You cannot judge when you are in that situation, which is really, really very, I mean, the pressure, imagine the pressure. I mean, I was hostage, but still we were in a completely different environment. With him, everybody was gone, or, or free, or killed. So he knew that that was for real, that they were killing people. And he realized that the government wasn't going to negotiate. He knew that the British didn't care about their hostages. And he knew that the options were, I'm going to be killed, or I can do this and survive for a while. For Javier and the other former hostages we've spoken to, it was obvious. John was just trying to survive. But suspicions were growing. As the videos kept coming, people said John 
looked unusual for a hostage. He was calm, assured, unflustered. If there was a gun pointing at him from behind the camera, then he didn't seem to notice it. But look a little closer, and there are signs that all isn't well. John looks terrible at this stage. Ignore the message and look at John, and he is clearly a captive. His teeth look broken and rotten. He's dramatically underweight. His hair is cropped. He's very, very gaunt. He looks, he looks terrible. He is clearly, in that series, a captive. The question then is not so much has he turned at that point. It's part of a beginning of evolution of questions, which is why has he been selected for this role and what will happen as a result of it? Because there's no obvious end state to the series. How's it going to end? We'll be back in just a moment. But if you're interested in this podcast, you might also want to try Stories of Our Times, the daily news podcast that brings together the best journalism from The Times and The Sunday Times. One story told in depth every day. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As people began to question whether John Cantley had turned whether he was betraying his country by siding with extremists, for John, the opposite was true. He felt his country had betrayed him with its rigid hostage policy. The British and American governments thought they could do it differently to every other European country. They negotiated with the Islamic State and got their people home, while the British and Americans were left behind. It's a consistent theme throughout the series. His anger, his reflections on how because of policy, you know, he's seen all European hostages walk to freedom and all of his British and American cellmates walk out the door one by one to be murdered. And he refers to that not only in the videos, but also in articles he starts writing. And it is definitely him writing them for De Beek. Islamic State's online magazine, which start also appearing that autumn. The written pieces are particularly revealing. This is part of the first article John wrote for Dabiq, the Islamic State magazine. I've had to become pretty tough inside, sometimes just to get through each day. I'm very thankful for any comfort I receive and for every plate of food I get. It hasn't been an easy road and some of us had a bumpy ride. Once we were finally put together with 
dozens of European prisoners, we had to watch them all go home to their loved ones, while we, the British and Americans, were left behind. That was a bitter pill to swallow, but nothing compared to what came next. Now I've had to watch as James, Stephen Sotloff, David Haynes and Alan Henning walks out of the door one every two weeks since August the 18th, never to return, knowing they were going to be killed and going to their deaths. What does that do to a man? After enduring years of pain, darkness and regret, to see it all end in such a ghastly way when everyone else went home, to see ordinary guys, family men, loving fathers, killed because their governments wouldn't negotiate because of policy. Can you begin to imagine how that feels? It's unimaginably bleak. And for John, he knew there had been a chance that they could have been released. A ransom demand was made for the British and Americans. It seemed to be to the tune of $100 million for the six male hostages, three Brits, three Americans, with an additional $5 million demand for the life of Kayla Muller. Kayla Muller was a young American human rights activist and aid worker who was kidnapped in 2013. For much of the time that John and James were held as hostages, they were often aware of Kayla being held in a nearby room. Now, that's a huge sum, much bigger than was demanded for the Europeans. But what you find with hostage negotiation is that that's an opening gambit. One thing is for sure, if you preclude yourself as a government from any ability to negotiate with a terrorist organisation then you will never know whether or not it is indeed possible to get your hostages back. And unlike Denmark, who allowed Daniel's family to raise a ransom for him, Britain and America wouldn't even allow that. In James Foley's case, the Foley family were threatened by an official from within the White House absolutely clearly that if they tried to raise any private funding to pay ransom for James's life, they were liable to prosecution. They're also the ones who are receiving the emails from Islamic State saying what will happen to James if they don't pay us. So they're bearing the maximum load of extreme distress and extreme worry without any ability to do anything about it. In Britain, the families of hostages were forced to follow the same rules. All they could do was wait and watch. One of the members the family of a British hostage in that time when the murders have begun told me that they've been advised by the Foreign Office that if nothing else they should try and be British about it. What does that mean? It's exhorting them to some sort of sense of resolve and dignity perhaps in the face of a terrible situation that there is nothing that will be done to help them. We asked the Foreign Office about their policy, and they told us the UK's long-standing policy is not to make substantive concessions to hostage-takers. We believe the payment of ransoms increases the risk of further hostage-taking and enables terrorists to fund their future activity, including attacks against the UK. But then... They have been known to make exceptions. Certainly in the past, that's an official policy not to negotiate. Both Britain and America regularly negotiate with terrorist organisations and did so previously really? when it suits them. That's interesting. Sort of even more recently, around this sort of period. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, the same year that American and British hostages were beheaded by Islamic State, America had released five top-ranking Taliban prisoners from Guantanamo in return for the life of just one American soldier, Sergeant Bo Bergdahl, who had been held captive for five years. This was a case that John Cantley and James Foley had heard about while they were being held hostage. For a while, it gave them hope. But by the time the videos were published, 
James had been killed, and that hope had turned to bitter fury. On June 1st of this year, Bergdahl was released. He was one man. We were six. Yes, Bergdahl was a soldier, and three of us were British. But is a civilian life, or six of them, really not worth discussing? There was no more talk, and we were left to our fate. We are not big people. We are not special. We're not US soldiers. But we are no more or less important than everyone else who went home. No exceptions were made for John or the other hostages. But for governments who won't consider paying a ransom, there's only one option left. John's friend, Kevin Godlington, who used to be in the Special Forces, knew exactly what that would mean. It was our duty in America and Britain, if we're not going to pay hostage fees, then at least we will mount a absolutely powerful attempt to rescue you all and bring you home. And they did. This was another moment in John Cantley's story when hope hung on by a thread. With the European hostages having been released and a war with ISIS now on the horizon, America and Britain had one last chance to save the hostages. July the 4th, 2014. This is just over two weeks after Daniel Rye, the Danish photographer, has been released. He's described the location where he was held with John Cantley and the others. A couple of weeks after his release, an American-led Special Forces raid goes in. Helicopter-borne, it's got two British liaison officers who were with the mission. They target a location at the edge of Raqqa that's got some oil refinery buildings in it. There's an exchange of fire, two or three Islamic State members are killed. The Special Forces operators get the teams, get in on the ground, they get in amongst the rooms, they certainly find in one room the word Kayla written on a cell wall. Kayla. But of the hostages, there is no trace because they've already been moved. They've been moved to a new location days before the raid took place. They got the right place too late. Just missed them. And for the hostages who are left, the ones who might have been rescued if things had just gone differently. How does that feel? The rescue attempt happened, but it didn't save them. Well, John Cantley certainly talked of this rescue attempt during the Lemme Your Ears series. I'll tell you about a failed raid to rescue us and how it feels to be left for dead by your own government. There's a total of seven Lemme Your Ears episodes in which he rails against British and American hostage policies. But also, embedded within that, there is the occasional coded message. One of them occurs in the episode of Lemurias in which John Cantley talks about the failed raid. He's extremely bitter about this raid. He said it would have cost more to launch the raid than to pay ransom. He has access to some media reports, so he's allowed to quote from various kind of articles. And one of the quotes. He doesn't source it, but is supposedly of an American Special Forces spokesman commenting on the failed raid afterwards, in which he says the problem basically with raids like this is you never know what the impact on the hostages will be in the aftermath of the raid. We're not sure if we missed them by 12 minutes or 12 hours, said Hector Pocock, a special operations spokesman. Missions like this are very risky because if they go wrong, you don't know how it'll affect the hostages further up the road. You don't say. John Canley delivers this quote, staring fixedly at the camera. The name he gives for the American Special Forces spokesman is in fact that of his young nephew who was at school at the time. So it's a coded message. It's a coded message. And it seems to be perhaps twofold. One saying, I'm still here, I'm reaching out to you, I'm, I'm John, I'm your uncle, I'm here, I've still, I've still got it. The other 
is fairly bleak. It's saying there were consequences for us as hostages for that failed raid. Now, in trying to work out what happened to John in this period of time, you have to reach out to quite a few sources. Later, a Yazidi captive was rescued in eastern Syria. It turned out that she, the Yazidi captive, had been held in the similar location to the hostages in between the raid and when the first execution started. She said in that period of time, the treatment of the remaining Western hostages was abhorrent. She had frequent beatings and cries in the final weeks before the execution started. So they were tortured because of that failed raid? Partially because of the failed raid. Remember, Islamic State would have lost people in that failed raid. Mm. But partially also, Islamic State would have realised, we're not going to get ransom for these people and we're going to take it out of them until we start killing them. And they're now under attack from the West. And they're now under attack from the West anyway. There's a lot of anger. Yeah. We were left to die. It's the worst feeling in the world, being left behind like that. We'd been in the longest, paid our dues, watched everyone else go home, never stopped believing, and then wham, have some of that. You're not worth negotiating for. The first time you need your government to do something for you, when it's truly life or death, they turn their back. Abandoned by his government, John's life was about to take another unlikely turn. We'll have more in a moment, but I just wanted to bring you a quick update. This is an ongoing and live investigation, and we have received some fascinating leads in the last few weeks, which we're currently following up. We'll bring you an update as soon as we can. But if you do want to get in touch with us, please do either tweet Anthony or me directly, or you can email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. If the Lend Me Your Ears series had raised suspicions, then what came next only seemed to confirm them. Suddenly, in October 2014, there's a gear change with the videos. That autumn, as Islamic State were engaged in a major battle in the city of Kobani, which was held by Syrian Kurds. We are seeing ISIS tanks, we are told, and artillery continually pound uh, Kobani. You can see the smoke rising in these pockets on the eastern outskirts of the city. Inside, Kurdish fighters are resisting them. Islamic State entered the city and looked for a time as if they were going to capture the whole whole city. You had the US-led coalition then starting to bomb and support Syrian Kurds in Kobani. Suddenly, in the middle of it all, John Cantley turns up in Kobani at the start of a new video series for Islamic State. It's called the Inside Series. So should we just have a look at this this video inside Kobani? This is a few months later. It's very different to Lend Me Your Ears. You know, there he's got a very dark background and he looks very stark in this sort of orange jumpsuit, looking gaunt. This is a different kind of film. It's very slick. Hello, I'm John Cantley, and today we're in the city of Kobani on the Syrian-Turkish... I mean, he looks very different here, doesn't he? John looks entirely different. His role is very different. He is no longer the angry prisoner in the orange jumpsuit whose message was Islamic State propaganda, sure, in Lemme Your Ears, but it was woven through with his own anger, his own anger at Western hostage policy, his own anger at being the last hostage left. In this, in Inside Kobani... He is playing the role of a correspondent, a TV presenter, reporting from a battle for Islamic State. Now, the Western media, and I can't see any of their journalists here in the city of Kobani, have been saying recently that the Islamic State are on the retreat. 
And he's physically different too. He's out of his prison clothes. He's dressed in dark civilian dress. He's had some sun on his face. He's no longer got prisoner's pallor. He's put on a tiny bit of weight from his earlier kind of ravaged appearances. I mean, the Lend Me Your Ears series was filmed not long before. We're talking about days or a couple of weeks before. But John's demeanour is different. He's grown a beard. He seems relaxed. And he is no longer the obvious prisoner. So the media are getting their information from Kurdish commanders and White House press secretaries, neither of whom have the slightest intention of telling the truth of what's happening. He is directly criticising the American government here. He is just delivering a straight-up Islamic State propaganda film. He's denouncing coalition airstrikes against Islamic State. He's kind of mocking the Syrian Kurds. He's advertising the fact that this city is just about to fall totally into the hands of Islamic State, which, of course, it didn't do. It became actually a teeth-rattling defeat for them. But John's role is different. He looks different. And his role here provoked far more questions than had occurred in the Lemurias series, Far more questions from people asking, has he in some way turned or has he become a willing messenger for Islamic State? Now, America is very keen for Kobani to become a symbol, but they know, and the Mujahideen also know, that even with all their air power and all the proxy troops on the ground, even this is not enough to defeat the Islamic State here in Kobani and elsewhere. This inside series carries on. They do a few more films from other locations. You know, they do one in Aleppo, which I think a lot of people in the press and the media were quite shocked by, because suddenly you sort of see John wandering around, praising bits of the Islamic State. The rules of Sharia are remarkably simple. For example, if you are convicted of robbery with the correct number of witnesses and such forth, you have your hand cut off. Sounds harsh, but you're not going to commit the same crime again, and it will dissuade others from doing the same. A lot of the sympathy that people felt in the West for John Canley during the Lend Me Your Ears series, when he is so clearly a captive, Mm. begins to wear off by the time the Inside series progresses. Because you see him, as you say, you know, in Inside Aleppo, he's, you know giving a bit of praise to Sharia law. And then he goes off and speaks to some French foreign fighters as well. I mean, he is becoming an Islamic State presenter. Now, you can argue, does he want to become an Islamic State presenter? Well, he hasn't got much choice if he wants to stay alive. However, the Western audience watching those films are beginning to lose a degree of sympathy with John Cantley. They are becoming confused as to whether he is a willing messenger or just a messenger of circumstance. For all of us, watching from afar, it's difficult to tell. John Cantley has clearly changed in the course of just a few months. He's gone from being an angry prisoner facing death to being a confident, playful presenter. And with all the other hostages gone, it's hard for us to verify what was really happening behind the scenes. What was John Cantley like when the cameras were switched off. In his quest to find out, Anthony travelled to Morocco. There was an Islamic State detainee in Morocco, a guy whose alias was Abu Hajar al-Maghribi, who had been sentenced to four years in prison in Morocco on his return from Syria, where he'd been working as an Islamic State cameraman. The cameraman could be a vital clue. If anyone would know what John was like when the filming stopped, it would be Abu Hajar. So with the help of the Moroccan intelligence services, Anthony arranged a meeting. I'm going to do a second one just here, just to double check. Mm -hmm. So it's in this, this empty waterfront on the banks of the Cebu River. There was some sort of quite tatty cafe there, no one around. Abu Hajar, can I just confirm that I've got the correct spelling of your kunya? It's Abu Hajar al-Maghribi. Okay, yes. And so I'm sitting at the table with an intelligence agent, a Moroccan intelligence agent, and the interpreter. 
And I can see a few tables up, there's another intelligence agent. There's no one else there at all. So, you know, we definitely stick out. And I think there's a third one somewhere, but I can't quite see them. So you're being watched? Oh, yeah, totally. So does that restrict what he can say? Or what he's willing yeah, so, to say? So look, one thing I've been really very cautious of, I don't want to fall into the trap of speaking to somebody who's lying to me. So I've clarified with these intelligence agents who absolutely know Abu Hajj's file inside out, know his interrogations and all the rest of it. Has this guy got a history of lying? And they say straight up, no, he's undoubtedly withheld information, mm. but none of the information which he has given us has been proven to be a lie later. Because this is something you never quite be sure with a prisoner. Are they just spinning you a line? Yeah. But Abu Hajjah is credible. He was Islamic State. He did work alongside John Cantley. So first of all, I'm speaking to a credible witness. And um, what did he tell you about John? He met John Cantley that autumn of 2014. He said, first of all, he met John when John had been moved to a cell and was being held in solitary confinement. Then... He started working with John Cantley as John Cantley was released totally from captivity and was given two... Abu Hajjah describes them as chaperones. What he's really talking about is guards. But John mm. had two Islamic State fighters with him who were both British and were not members of the Beatles. One was Egyptian British and the other Abu Hajjah describes as, as white English British. They were with John the whole time. So, obviously, I wanted to ask a few things. First of all, how was it that John Cantley had managed to survive and get this role? Mm. Um, and how committed was he to it? Abu Hajjah said, John Cantley's life was saved as a result of the intercession of the British brothers. By that, he meant the Beatles. So it was the Beatles. They decided he would survive. They decided. Abu Hajjah did say as well that John had offered to play that role. He said, John had oh, really? said, yeah, he said, hey, I can do this. John's desperate to survive. John is the only hostage left. Everybody else has been killed. John is very short of options here. John will do whatever it takes. Did John seem happy? Did he seem comfortable? He was quiet. He was reserved. He was still frightened at any time he could be killed. He wasn't sure whether the death sentence upon him had been lifted or not. And it took a bit of time for him to get his confidence. He was at ease with his two chaperones. Abu Hajjah said, you know, there was laughter and easiness between them. So these were two people he seemed to know. That's interesting. So these guards, their purpose isn't to be effectively the, the gun to his head, forcing no, 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 him no. to behave in a particular no. way. These are to check he doesn't run off but also just to protect him if needed be, but from other Islamic State. But by this stage, John's videos are becoming very well known within ISIS as well. So people recognise him. Is he sort of a celebrity in ISIS circles? Oh, the original Lemuria series had had a huge positive impact for Islamic State. They saw it as really vexing Western powers. It was great Islamic State messaging delivered by a guy who believed what he was saying. So he's now becoming a known personality. For Abu Hajjah, who is living with John Cantley and Kobani, do while this is being shot, he's seeing what's happening when the camera's switched off. Does he think John Cantley is enjoying the role? Is he enjoying his new status? Is he comfortable doing what he's doing? No, but neither is he uncomfortable. Abu Hajjah just said, look, you know, John was... Still in fear of his life, he didn't know whether or not he could be killed at any minute. He said he was very professional, that's what he noted. And there were some sad details as well, or, or poignant details. I asked him, well, when was the last time you saw John? And he said, oh, he'd driven in a car with his two British Islamic State chaperones because they wanted to see some of their friends who were wounded and were in hospital. And so John went to this hospital 
in Man Beach to go and visit these wounded fighters. And the two chaperones saw their friends there. I said, what did John do? And he said, oh, well, John just stood there because he had no friends. And it it was, yeah, it was just, I don't know whether he meant that inference in the sentence, but that's what he said. John just stood there because he had no friends. Very lonely picture. This is, you know... Lonely position, being the only surviving hostage. The only surviving hostage, and really the only person involved in the struggles to keep John alive by that stage was John himself. It's in a very, very lonely position. John was all alone in the Islamic State. A world away, his friends had also experienced an extraordinary few months. They'd gone from watching beheadings and fearing for John's life to seeing the angry speeches in Lend Me Your Ears, the hope of a rescue, the disappointment when it failed, and now the transformation of their friend into a presenter of propaganda for the Islamic State. I had no doubt in my mind that he was continuing the charade. That's Kevin Godlington again, who'd given John some training on how to cope if you're kidnapped before he went to Syria. I think people should do whatever they need to to survive. I talked to John about this a lot, about being malleable and just bending to the rules and how you can cope better by behaving appropriately. Make yourself useful. I repeated it to him over a hundred times. Be useful, right? And if you make yourself useful, it's very difficult for anybody to get rid of you. But my friends, colleagues, people I knew were, some of them, taking the view that he was being too useful and he should try a bit harder, perhaps, you know? Were there people who started to question whether he'd turned, whether he'd actually just become a member of ISIS? Yes, I got contacted by a number of friends who worked in either military or intelligence who were querying whether or not John had defected to the other side, which even the mere mention of the word defect is almost obscure. We're not talking about an exchange of spies here. We're talking about a man being tortured daily, deprived of basic human need, who's lost a third of his body weight, teeth appeared rotten. And I can see this and you can't. I mean, what planet are you on? And my inquiries led me to the fact that that was the general consensus. Tell me about that. What were you hearing? Inside the military and inside the foreign office, that there was two schools of thought. He's either now immaterial because he's actually a burden to us, or he's worse, he's been turned and has become a sympathiser because of Stockholm Syndrome, whatever it is, but has now become aligned to the cause. And then if you add to that, all the others are dead, there's not really much point rescuing or trying to get John Cantley out. And how were they justifying that to you? Well, they were saying that in their view, I'm being naive because I'm his friend. They've watched all the videos. They've seen the evidence. And it was, it was clear to them that he has sympathies. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It caused a lot of tense <sighs> interactions with people. The military establishment and the security establishment and indeed the foreign office were divided over the issue of John Cantley at this stage. You had the media beginning to speculate as to whether John might have Stockholm Syndrome, but also voices within the security establishment suggesting John Cantley may be a traitor. I remember at the time a serving British general saying if ever John Cantley makes it back alive, he should be tried for treason. He is a traitor. I had friends... Wow. I had friends... So that, they said that to you? Yeah, and I absolutely. And I had friends involved in meeting with the security services at the time, who described senior officers within the SIS who could barely conceal their contempt and disdain for John Cantley at this time. As the doubts about John grew and lingered, for his friends, for people who knew what it was like to work in Syria... People like the former Times correspondent Tom Coughlin, all the suspicion was misplaced. I think 
he has been kind of unfairly treated in some ways. And I think that the the way he carried himself in captivity, I don't blame him for one moment for the fact that he, you know, indeed I admire him for the way that he fought. You know, to stay alive. Are you selling me off too? <laughs> um, I always thought John was was still John in those videos. He was doing what he had to do to come back to be alive for for his people, for his family, because he just wanted to live and. Who blames anyone for that? Next time on Last Man Standing, Anthony goes in search of clues in the last place where John Cantley was seen alive. Mosul holds the key to John Cantley's fate. I asked the ISIS, I told him, who is this man? Is he a brother? He said, no, no, he is a British journalist. He coming here to evaluate the life under the Islamic State. So John's manner at the time was relaxed. He said, I cannot imagine he was captured with him, hostage with him. He was free. One person was with him and uh, he laughed. Last Man Standing is a Stories of Our Times production for The Times and The Sunday Times. This series is based on an investigation and interviews conducted by Anthony Lloyd, war correspondent at The Times. It's co-presented and executive produced by me, Manveen Rana. The lead producer is Poppy Damon. The producer is Matthew Wareham. Story editing is by Joe Sykes at Samizdat Audio. Sound design and original music is by Tom Birchall. And the executive producer of Stories of Our Times is Kate Ford. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.